So let's pray, and we'll get into the passage. Uh, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for um, our, our church family and for how you're working in our midst and uh, just amongst us and in our lives. Uh, Father, we ask that you would help us to, to continually to seek you as our Father. Um, we thank you that you, um, you have adopted us as your children and that we've become fellow heirs of Christ. It's something that I don't know that we can really comprehend this side of heaven, but we thank you um, for that truth that you have communicated to us. God, we ask that you would help us to grow closer to you, that we would grow deeper in our understanding of our relationship with you and that which you expect of us. Uh, Father, we confess that it's so easy um, to fall into a system of rules and regulations and um, things that go beyond the scriptures. And so, Father, we ask that you would teach us what grace really is and uh, what it means to walk with you uh, just faithfully. Uh, we love you, Lord, and we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen. <clears throat> Mark chapter 2, verse 18. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And they came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast. I'm sorry. So the bridegrooms of the, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? They got distracted, sort of thinking about an impending marriage and, and got distracted. Um, so long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews an, a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, otherwise the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear results. No one puts new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost, and the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. And Father, we do thank you and praise you for this opportunity that we have to worship you through the studying of your word. We ask that your spirit would guide each one of us, that your word uh, would, would penetrate into our hearts, uh, that we would understand the, the, the principles, the, the truths here that you would have us to know and to apply in our lives. Uh, again, Lord, we ask that you would guard us uh, from uh, uh, legalism and creating a bunch of rules uh, that you have not given to us. And we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen. All right, so verse 18 begins, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and they came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Um, in the New American Standard, it, 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 it kind of makes it fl flow in a way that if you read it really quickly, it's, it's hard to gather what actually is, is happening. Um, the setting from last week, we spent two weeks with the calling of, of Levi, 
Um, Levi was called as a disciple. This guy who was not liked by his culture would be an understatement. Um, he then has a banquet at his house, calls all of the, the tax collectors and non-religious Jews over. Jesus goes and spends the evening with these guys. And, and while he's doing that, the Pharisees are on the outside looking in, kind of asking the question, why in the world is Jesus eating with these people who are unclean and basically banished from, from our uh, community? Why, why would he do this? And so it's believed that the scene is still going on, that, that we're still at that setting at the, at, in the general area of this. Either it's happening or it's broken up or um, we haven't moved on in time. And so Mark says sort of a, a cultural thing that had been going on. They observed that there's um, the disciple, John the Baptist, his disciples. John the Baptist likely at this part point in Mark's story has already certainly been under arrest, if not executed already. Um, but John had many, many followers. We, we see that all the way up into Acts chapter 19, um, I think it was Acts 19, where they're going out sharing the gospel and they encounter disciples of John. It's like 20 years later. And they hadn't really gotten the gospel message about what had happened. And so he had this huge following. And so John's disciples fasted. Uh, so they didn't eat food. Um, and the Pharisees were also fasting. And then there's a third group. This is the and they in the New American Standard and the NIV and other translations. Some of them have like a period and then goes on to say, and some came to him questioning him about th- this what, that was happening. Um, And so they came and they said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not? So they they don't seem to be a part of these two groups, but they seem to be influenced by these two groups who had great um, religious influence in, in the culture. And so they look at Jesus and his disciples, and they're not fasting. They're not going through uh, the, the rituals. Um, this is a part of a, a bigger thing that's happening in Mark. We, we start with that Jesus is dining with sinners. Uh, now he's questioned about uh, fasting. In the next two weeks, we're going to see that Jesus is going to be challenged about how he handles the Sabbath um, and the traditions associated with the Sabbath. And it culminates into Mark chapter 3, verse 6, where we read, The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him and how they might destroy him. So as this story unfolds, it's this building tension between Jesus and the religious establishment where they're going to get more and more and more fed up with his popularity growing and his cutting against their life and tradition and culture to the point where they want to have him executed, and they do have him executed, spoiler alert, um, so, um, so their question is, is about fasting, but the issue really isn't fasting. Like the, the issue has to do with their traditions. Um, but in order to, to look at this, we have to sort of look at the background. We live in a society where um, fasting doesn't really have a, a huge influence in our lives. Like, like we don't do a lot of fasting, um, 
so it's kind of foreign to us, although it is, I feel like it's building steam in like secular culture. I just had an old buddy posted a, uh, a video on, he's start, starting to do a, a five-day fast every so often because, you know, animals naturally have famines in their life, and so he thinks he's an animal, and so he's going to force a fast on himself and so that his body can do what all this, I don't, know, I don't know. All I'm saying is getting, there seems to be a growing popularity amongst, with fasting today outside of religious circles. And so I want to do a quick familiarization of fasting in the Bible, um, just really quick, not, not taking a lot of time. When we look at the Old Testament, f- first and foremost, there's... Um, there's only one fast in the Old Testament that, that most people believe was prescribed, and that's Yom Kippur, or the, the Day of Atonement. Um, and if you read the text, it, it, it's not really as clear. It, it's kind of that you're supposed to deprive yourself for the day, and so, so fasting fits. But most everybody holds to that the Day of Atonement is the one fast that you're supposed to fast one day a year, uh, where it was where it was commanded, and that was in Leviticus something or other. Um, other than that, in the Old Testament, what we see from fasting is this: the simplest way to understand fasting is that fasting was always a response to something, um, a, a, a crisis of some sort. A, a king had issued an edict, and the Jewish people are going to be executed if this edict is fulfilled, and so the people. Um, fast to sort of in, in mourning and desperation, seeking God for help. We, um, we, we see a crisis of, of a child that's about to die from King David. And so he fasts seeking God because he's so heartbroken over this child that, that it seems that he's going to die. And so he fasts during this time, sort of pleading with God that the child might be spared. Um, we, we see it a response to when you're confronted with the crisis of your sin, and it's, it's an act of repentance. We see this at Nineveh, that the people were confronted with their sin, and a fast was declared to respond in mourning. So the, the big picture is the book of the Old Testament. There's only one required fast, and that's the Day of Atonement for one day. And then the other fasts that you see in the Old Testament are... Um, are responses to a crisis of one crisis or another, sort of in, in just simplest terms. By the end of some of the minor prophets, you, you see they mention that the people, have, they, they started fasting more regularly, um, but it's not really clear. It references it in a couple spots, but it's not, it's not prescribed or anything like that. Um, as we... As we move to the time of Jesus' time, um, the Pharisees seem to have been born out of the Maccabee Revolution, like during that window, so about 400 years by the time of Jesus' time. And as the Pharisees were, were born up, they were more of a religious party uh, or a political party with religious, religious sort of affiliations. And so somewhere from the Maccabean Revolt to the time of Jesus, fasting had become... A, um, 
like an act of self-righteousness, that it was a ritual that was done twice a week. So every Monday and every Thursday, they fasted. It, it, without, with, without question, if you were a Pharisee or you were following John the Baptist, if you were just a part of religious life and culture in Judaism, you fasted on Monday and Tuesday. And it went from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. So it was basically a 12-hour fast where you restricted food. And then when the sun set, then you were allowed to eat whatever you wanted. I mean, within the rules, you could eat whatever you wanted to eat. Um, And so it had become this sort of this this ritual of um, something that you did, and it built you up sort of that you became righteous in your own eyes. An example of this, if you want to turn with me over to Luke 18, uh, this is the passage that we looked at at the the call of Matthew that they did in the movie, um, which I I still think they did a really fascinating job of uh, creating that scene of this, this parable that Jesus tells with the calling of Matthew. And so in Matthew chapter 18, verse 9, we read here that he also, that's Jesus, told this parable to some of the people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they viewed others with contempt. So now Jesus is dealing with these these religious folk who had created all of these systems that uh, they could do and that as they did them, they basically felt self-entitled that God owed them, uh, you know, to look at them with, with, with uh, that God should esteem them because they'd done so well with this little system that they'd created. And as they did their system, they began looking down on other people. And so in verse 10, we, Jesus tells the story, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying to himself, there's a lot that could be said about that, um, God, I thank you that I am not like the other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. So the two things that he names, he names that he fasts twice a week, every Monday, every Thursday. And he ties. Neither of these things in of themselves are bad. But if you take them and you use them to, to make yourself feel more righteous for, for your, before you're standing before God, that's where the problem occurs. And then Jesus continues in verse 13, but the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven and was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to the house, his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. And so that's, I think that kind of, that, that kind of demonstrates the, the climate of how fasting was viewed during Jesus' um, time. They were more concerned about the externals than they were about the heart, uh, the place that only God can see. Um, and we see this over and over again. God cares about the heart. He doesn't care about the externals. He wants to get deep within you. And that part where you're hurting, you have pain, you have anger, you have bitterness, that's the part that God cares about, not what you look like on the outside. 
And the Pharisees only cared about the outside. And, and this question that they asked, this isn't done with uh, the, the inflection in the Greek. It's clear that, that this, this isn't asked as like, hey, Jesus, like, we're looking at your message. Why is it? It's, why is it that your guys don't fast and they fast? It's, it's really asked with contempt towards Jesus, calling him out. Um, before I get into that, let's move on to, to present day. Um, so fasting in the epistles and, and really pre- present day Christianity. Um, I think it was three years ago that we were in Matthew. And we came to Matthew chapter 9, the parallel account to the story. And I remember kind of going, okay, we're coming to fasting. I used to fast, but I haven't been fasting as much since I, I, I kind of anticipated that I'd feel really guilty and convicted studying about fasting. Kind of like when you teach on prayer, it's like you always like, oh, I don't pray enough. I need to become a better prayer. Like the, the guilt and, and just sort of like, that I want to be a better Christian. I want to be like a Pharisee, you know? <laughs> like I want the externals to be really uh, strong. And so I knew that fasting was coming on the horizon and I said, okay, when I finish the Sunday beforehand, what I'm going to do is I'm going to fast all week. And then I'm going to preach on fasting. And then I'm going to eat afterwards. <laughs> like, so it was this really awesome plan I had established. And so I think I made it through Sunday night. Like, I think I got through the afternoon. And then as I got to Monday morning and I started searching fasting, in the epistles in particular, I realized that I had no biblical basis for what I was doing. And then my conviction of feeling guilty for not fasting enough and that I was going to force a fast this week, I suddenly be- began to feel really convicted that I just needed to eat that week. And it wasn't like I'm hungry. It was like what I'm doing isn't biblical. Um, and I think that I'd been influenced early in my Christian life by being, by being at a church that, was, that probably leaned more charismatic and put a little emph- more emphasis on external things, especially like fasting. The pastor really pushed like 40-day fasts and, and things like this. And, and, and so in my juvenile Christian mind, I had sort of reached the point where I equated fasting with being spiritually minded. And then as I reached that time three years ago when I began to study fasting, do you know how many times it's mentioned in the epistles? Like, like once you leave Acts, it's zero times. It's not mentioned anywhere in the epistles. If you don't believe me, I'll quote a good commentary, the New American Commentary, which says, aside from this passage and its parallels, so the parallels of this passage are found in Matthew chapter 9, Luke chapter 5. The New Testament, the New Testament says little about fasting. The only passages are Matthew chapter 6, Acts chapter 9, 13, and 14. So there's three places in Acts where they mention that they had done fasting. But then when you go beyond that, there's zero mention of fasting any, anywhere in the epistles. So all of the disciples who God raised up by his spirit to, to pin the, the letters that were given to instruct his church, there's zero reference to, to fasting at all which I find interesting. 
The commentary then goes on to say, fasting is a matter of Christian freedom, freedom not obligation, which I 100% like, agree with that. The, the, the issue at hand, when they ask Jesus this question, the issue is traditions, man-made things that they had put into place that then had risen to the level, if not above Scripture, in their maintaining and doing. And so Jesus wasn't doing any of that stuff. And so he's confronted by it. And so the first question, before I go any further, with everything I just said, the first thing I need to ask is, was Jesus opposed to fasting? And the, 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 the answer is absolutely not. We've already seen that Jesus, when he began his ministry, after he was baptized by John the Baptist, he went into the 40 days of temptation, and during that time, he fasted. I would suggest that during that time, there was a crisis, namely that he was beginning his earthly ministry, the attack of Satan was going to begin on him, and so he fasted in response to the crisis that he now faced. Um, But what he's opposed to is man-made traditions. Things that we might put up like, you know, the bumpers at the bowling alley to try to teach people how to bowl. We put bumpers up in our life and they might start really good. But then all of a sudden we turn these these bumpers, these these things into rituals um, and they turn into things that actually are really bad, um, even though they might have originated really good. And so the Life Application Bible commentary on this point says, at every turn, Jesus challenged the Pharisees' way of looking at life. They lived by appearance. He challenged the motives. They constructed elaborate behavior patterns to indicate their holiness. Jesus taught that good actions done for the wrong reasons have no moral or spiritual effect. Um, now that we've covered that, I want to I re-read verse 18 in the NIV so that we have a little bit of clarity on, on the, the situation. Or now that we have hopefully a little bit more clarity that when we read the verse we'll understand with, with greater detail. And the NIV words it this way. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Um, I'd like to interrupt this program for a quick survey. Uh, I... I've really been wrestling. So I use the New American Standard. I've used it for years. I've, I've, I've read it a bunch of times, and it's very wooden in its approach, but I'm very comfortable with it, and I've been trying to like branch out of my comfort zone to expose me to other stuff. But, I'm, but I've always been like hesitant of shifting translations for fear because of a Pharisee, you know, like, oh, can Gunnar change the translation? So I'm just kind of curious. How many of you like really don't care what translation we read out of, and you might not even know what translation you're presently reading out of. Just kind of raise your hand. Like, seriously, just read. There's like three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Huh? Don't, you don't care. You, you know, like, don't take it as a bad way. How many of you are like, you read out of the New American Standard because that's what I preach of and it's going to really hurt your feelings if I maybe, like, shifted? <laughs> or you can confront me privately. How many of you read out of the NIV? These are all good translations. How many of you read out of the ESV? 
How many of you read out of the hardcore Southern Baptist translation? That's a, a oh wow, there's a couple of those, okay. Uh, how many of you are New King James? Okay, a lot of New King Jamesies. Okay, so like ESVs, did I ask that one already? I think there's a handful of ESVs, okay. Sorry, I didn't what? Oh, the message, the message is, is interesting, yeah. I didn't ask about that because I wouldn't, yeah. But, but it's fine, I don't have any heartburn with it, so. Um, okay, now we can get back to the program. I just needed to, it was the easiest way for me to kind of do a quick little survey here. <clears throat> so they come, they ask Jesus a question. And so Jesus responds to them in verse 19. He said, while the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. And so now Jesus, in answering them, he goes, he's going to give three different illustrations. He's going to go from a wedding to a patch job to wine. And um, he's going to reason with them from their very own culture. And so this first part is, is the wedding. And for us, I've been thinking about weddings, you know, because we, we have a dilemma. There's a wedding coming up from a kid that was raised in the church that's not here anymore, but his parents are still here. And, and so I've been thinking about weddings. It's like the way our weddings work is, and there's a bunch of different ways. I like, you know, you could run to the courthouse. You can do a bunch of different stuff. But just traditionally, you normally, you get a little postcard. Hey, save the date. We're getting married in like seven years, and here's the date, you know? <laughs> so save that date so it's reserved. And then later, you'll get an invitation like, hey, we cordially invite you to this wedding. Um, please RSVP. Um, here's like seven different food options. Which one would you like to have at the party? And then you get, you know, you take your suit to the cleaners. You go to the wedding. You enjoy a big, great party. Uh, by the end of the party, the couple whisked away and they go on their honeymoon somewhere and that's kind of like the end of the story. And, and in their day, it was totally different. Um, so for them, a, a wedding was a week-long celebration. Um, the, 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 the best man and, and, and the, the immediate like wedding party, they were responsible during this week to... To, to make sure that the bride and groom were totally taken care of. They were treated like royalty. Um, they had basically a week of an open house, which seems t like terrible from like, you just get married and now you have a whole week where you're having like an open house potluck at your house kind of thing. Like, <clears throat> but it's what they did. And they loved it. A, a wedding was the most um, special joyous occasion that they had. They lived really difficult lives. And li life was hard. I mean, they didn't have Google. They didn't have computers. They didn't have air conditioning. Like, all of these modern conveniences, like, life was really hard. And, and so then when a wedding came, it was this big, big celebration that the whole community would participate in. They would open up their homes. The attendants would would care to make sure that everything was taken care of, people would come. It was a week of feasting and celebration and, and just having a wonderful time. Um, one commentator says this, concerning the religious regulations during this week. Because remember, like the issue at hand, there's fasting on Mondays and Thursdays. There's a whole bunch of other stuff. 
that, that the, the Mishnah and these regulations, that the, that the commentaries on the actual text and, and just the culture of the people had created all of these rules for day-to-day life that really made living for God just burdensome. How far you could walk, what you could eat, what you couldn't eat, what you could do, what you couldn't do. And so Barclay says this. He says, there was actually a rabbinic ruling which said, all in attendance on the bridegroom are relieved of all religious observances which would lessen their joy. I would be going to a wedding every single week. (laughs) Who's getting married next? (laughs) It's like the the star to get you out of all of the stuff. So literally the rabbi said, you don't have to do any of our man-made rules. You don't have to do anything. If it will lessen your joy at the wedding, forget about it. You just enjoy the wedding. You enjoy the whole week-long celebration. So now we look at what Jesus says with whole another, like, and Jesus said to them, well, while the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast. Can they? Of course, the answer is no, they can't. But the people asking the question are kind of like, I don't want to answer that question. Because if I answer that question, he's, ah, it's checkmate. He's got me. So then Jesus answers it. And he says, so long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Because the rabbis have said all of their rules are off the table if it will lessen your joy. Not eating would lessen my joy. <laughs> Most, I mean, God created us to eat. And so, so they're exempt. I think that they would have understood it kind of like Ecclesiastes 3, verse 4. You know, there's a time for mourning and there's a time for rejoicing. There's a time to laugh, there's a time to cry. When there's a wedding going on, when there's a banquet, this isn't a time for mourning. And fa- fasting, I mean, they painted their face white to replicate death. It, 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 was, it was a sorrowful action. And so then he continues, he said, but the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in that day. So, so we, it's easy for us to, to see what he's saying in hindsight, like we're looking back to the cross. I don't know that the hearers would have heard what we hear. Um, but, but he makes this allusion and he seems to be pointing forward to, to the cross. Um, there, there's kind of some scholarly debate, like what's Jesus, what's he saying? Um, Is he speaking about once he's taken away and then his followers for the rest of uh, their lives and for uh, the next thousand years are going to be filled with uh, their lives fasting on Mondays and Thursdays and doing the whole ritual? Or is he talking about just generally fasting that's seen in the, the Old Testament? I think he's talking about fasting in the Old Testament. But I think specifically he's, he's talking about the immediate surrounding time frame from Jesus' arrest, arrest uh, crucifixion, burial d- during that window. Um, a, a number of commentators pointed out that, um, that fasting isn't recorded in the Christian communities until the second century. And so it seems to be something that was ad- adopted much like later following Jesus' uh, time. And so I'm, I'm, I, I'm, 
What's my point here? I think Jesus says, like, hey, time's going to come. And he's alluding that he's going to be arrested, crucified. It's going to be a terrible, terrible time. And I often do think that, that biblical fasting, there's like a crisis where when there's a crisis, like you have a loved one that's about to die, you have a, a, a significant decision to make about something. You don't really feel like eating during those times. And, and, I, and I do think that these times are times when it calls for a response on our part to say, Lord, I'm not going to eat because I want to seek you and I need your wisdom and I need you to guide me. And I just want to keep my mind on you because every time I'm hungry, I'm just going to start praying. So, so I do think it's a, a tool that can be very helpful, but they've taken this tool and they've created it into this, it's really this man-made way of building themselves up. And so from the wedding, he moves to the, the cloth illustration, which verse 21, it's pretty simple, straightforward. Um, the implications are a little bit deeper. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, and the new from the old, and a worse tear results. I'm not a big sewer, if you guys can imagine that. I don't, uh, I almost said I don't scrapbook, but that has nothing to do with sewing. But I don't scrapbook either. Uh, oh, what's that called? The thing that my wife does, you know, you take little squares and you, cro- not crocheting, quilting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like way out of my league in this, but I know you don't like, like if you take pre-shrunk cloth and then you add sh- cloth that hasn't shrunk, you make it just perfect, it's going to pull away, it's going to tear it open. So there, there's a problem with the materials. And it's pretty straightforward. But he's not done yet because he's going to go on to the wineskins. And he says, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. So the, the issue is when you have new wine, they've created the wine, there's a fermentation process going. They would take that and they would put it into sort of a bag like made out of animal skin. And the skin would have to be new skin that it still has some elasticity so that as the fermentation process happened, the bag could expand. But eventually, when the wine was done with its fermenting process and it had expanded, the bag had sort of reached its capacity of expansion and eventually it would become brittle and it could tear really easily. And so you'd have to start with new skin with new wine. Now you could put old wine into old wineskins. That was, that was fine. He continues, he says, otherwise the wine will burst the skins and the wine is lost and the skin as well. So you have double, you have double trouble. It's, it's, uh, you lose the skin and you lose the wine. This, this, this commodity that was a, a huge part of their culture and society. He says, but one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. And so the, the difficult part is like, what's he saying? Um, the implications are, are, are kind of difficult to wrestle with. So, so one thought is that what Jesus is doing is entirely new. He's getting rid of the, the whole Old Testament. He's completely creating something new. Um, that that doesn't that that can't be like that can't be what he's saying because he's challenged later and he says you're doing away with the whole law and he said no 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 I came to fulfill the law Um, the second option which I think he likely means 
is the, the religious system, the way that Judaism had begun to, to practice the truth that is found in the Old Testament had deviated so far from the message of the Old Testament that you, you, can't just, you can't just do a patch job. You can't, you can't take what they'd created and sort of fix it a little bit. It, it needed to be demolished. It needed to be scraped down to the foundation of the Old Testament to the Scriptures and built from the foundation that God had revealed, not from what they had created. Um, there's another aspect that doesn't uh, conflict with the second thing that I think he's saying, but I also think it also it could deal with um, the question that they're asking. That there's a vein of thought that what, what he is also asking is, why are you pulling from these guys as disciples? These guys are throwbacks. They've been rejected by the religious system. Why aren't you pulling from the good boys who have made it through their training and they don't have a rabbi yet. Which I do think, I think both of these components are, are true. Um, I, I think of when I was um, beginning my process to go to the Navy and I, wanted, I knew I wanted to be a SEAL and I'd, I had uh, my senior year of high school, somebody lined me up with somebody that, uh, there was, there was a, a Navy SEAL that I could go s- have lunch with and talk with the guy. And I remember when I talked with him, I said, hey, do I need to go take shooting lessons? Do I need to l- go learn how to scuba dive? Do I need to go learn how to do all this stuff? Will that help me when I get there? And he's like, he's like stop, don't, know. Don't go do any of that stuff. And then I realized that when I became an instructor, putting guys who train, the guys who came through like, <sighs> I'm an Eagle Scout. I've been trained to shoot in seven different disciplines. I know jujitsu, MMA, all this stuff. I'm a a patty dive master. It's like, dude, get out. We don't want you. You're you're so ruined by the things that you've learned that we're never going to be able to train you. We need a a fresh slate. Like We want to start with the foundation, and very few guys could acclimate to the SEAL teams who came from other services, or they had all of their credentials because they'd come in arrogant, thinking the way that they've been trained, which isn't the way we think or do things. And I kind of think that Jesus is saying, I can't. if I pulled from those kids, they've been so indoctrinated by the pharisaical system that they're not going to be able to, to grow and adapt with what I'm teaching. Um, I, I see, like, to kind of bring this to us, I see this in Christian circles. I, I have, somehow I ended up in this pastor's network of uh, extremely conservative pastors. Now, I'm not saying conservative like they take the word of God seriously. I'm saying conservative and they preach in suits. They only have a piano in the worship service. They only will use the King James Version, speaking of the polls. <laughs> uh, they, there's a bunch of stuff that I don't even know. And a lot of times like, they'll, there'll be a, something going on, and I'll go to Anna, I'm like, hey, Anna, can you explain to me what this is saying? Like, I don't even think I understand it. 
She's like, oh, yeah, 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 that's easy. That's, you know, because she grew up in independent fundamental Baptist circles, and so she knows all these guys, and, and she most of the time is embarrassed by the things that I say or ask in the group because I don't mind throwing little hand grenades. But I, loved, I do like the guys. I appreciate it, or I would have left the group. But I can't tell you how many times these young men and old men, mostly the young guys, like right out of seminary, they'll come in very dogmatic with, Church has to be done this way. This many minutes, this translation, this is the formula for how you do it. It's in the Bible. Like, whoa, whoa. Hey, cowboy. I was like, hey, what verse is that? Can you show me? Like, and these guys will get really, really mad because they're convinced that these traditions that they hold to and that they're promoting are straight out of the Bible. And they're not. They're straight out of tradition. And it's really easy for us as Christians to fall into the same trap. It's normally really easy to see it in other people because you see somebody else that has different convictions in you and has been sort of raised differently, differently than you and they've been in a different church with different polity, different way that they do things. And you can get really dogmatic about that's the way that it has to be because that's what the Bible says. Ah, the Bible doesn't really... And so that's the issue with these people. They see they fast on Monday and Thursday. Your guys aren't fasting on Monday and Thursday. And the Bible says you're supposed to fast on Monday and Thursdays if you're going to be a good Jewish person. So Jesus tells them that your, your foundation is so skewed that we have to just get rid of it all and we have to build fresh. Um, and this is, this is building huge tension between the Pharisees because they're going to get into, you know, that saying it's strange bedfellows. Like, like yeah, yeah, the Pharisees, like, these people that are asking the question, they're suddenly now pairing the Pharisees and John the Baptist. That doesn't make sense. Why would they do that? And I don't sense that John the Baptist's crew was a part of this. And then later the story as it unfolds, the Pharisees we're going to see are going to become really good friends with the Herodians, which they would never get along with the Herodians. But... For the sake of condemning Jesus, they're fine pairing with the Herodians. So the question is, like, what do we do with the story today? I, um, there's sort of two sides that I see. I, I see, number one, I'm great. Like, I'm really grateful that I don't have a lot of baggage from church. Like, I didn't, wasn't raised in the church, and... So I, like, I'm really just naive about the pain and sorrow that a lot of churches have caused a lot of people. And, and I do believe that there are a lot of people that have been deeply, deeply wounded <clears throat> by modern-day Pharisees that, that have created a bunch of rules and regulations and have imposed it on people, and you maybe have um, had these things forced on you, and then you consequently tend to like, enforce them on others without really even knowing it. Um, so there are people that are hurt by these people. Like, there, there are people who are deeply wounded, and I believe that there are people, like, it wouldn't surprise me if people in our midst have had scars from other churches. It also wouldn't surprise me that, that we become like a, a, Larry Osborne wrote a book a couple years ago called Accidental Pharisees. I read about a quarter of it, or I skimmed it, and um, I really like the title because I think there are a lot of us who accidentally become Pharisees. 
um, you have a problem with something. And so you put up this rule to provide safety for you to guard how you walk with Christ. And then a couple years goes by, and you meet somebody else, and they don't have that same like, barrier to protect their lives. And so then you look down on that person because they're not doing that thing that you started out because you really had a weakness in that area. And then before you know it, you're a legalist. And you think your job is to write tickets for God, for people that are not walking with him the right way because of your convictions. Not, and I'm not talking about stuff that's black and white in the Bible. And so the question is, what is, hell is weak. Like, what does God want from us? And one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, which is classic that you, you know, you, you have a favorite verse in the Bible, but you don't know the context. So one of my favorite verses, I hear it in songs, is, is Micah 6, 8, you know, and it, it's, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. But I never could tell you what the verses preceding that are. And now I think I want to do a little, like, another review. I know I've read Micah a bunch of times, but I want to do a little study on Micah. I don't know where it will go, but I want to study it just to kind of get the whole context. But, but starting in verse 6, listen to the lead-up. There's, like, this discussion happening. It says, with what shall I come before the Lord and... And bow down before the exalted God. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Shall I bring the best of the livestock and have it slaughtered before God? Or will the Lord be pleased with a thousand rams? With 10,000 rivers of olive oil. So maybe God wants rams and olive oil. I'll bring the best of the best and I'll sacrifice that for, to him. And maybe that'll make him happy with me. And then it gets really good. Oh, good, Grace is here, my firstborn. Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Like, who wants to kill their first kid? Well, that's probably a bad question. Sometimes there are times your kids are like... But it seems like this is like the super extreme. Shall I take my very firstborn, the thing that I love, my Isaac? And shall I, for the consequences of my sin, should I sacrifice their life to atone for my soul? This is like desperation. God, what do you want of me? Do you want me to fast twice a week? What can I do to make it up to you? What can, there's nothing. The cross. Jesus paid it all for you, for me. It's by grace, which is hard for us to understand because we want to do things to get right with God. And, and as the answer, which I think applies to us just as much as it did in the Old Testament, to, to act justly, to, to live your life in a way that you acknowledge that God has revealed there is right and wrong. And you do your best to, to navigate life seeking him, do the right thing, don't do the wrong thing. To love mercy. I think this speaks to how we interact with other people. Live life in a way that you're gracious to others. Why don't you fast twice a week? Well, maybe they've experienced the joy of the Lord and they're doing pretty good. Like, they're, like you know, don't. We're so quick to come down and judge other people. 
To, to love mercy means that you're gracious to others, that you cut people a little slack. God didn't hire you as his police officer. He wants you to walk humbly with him. And I think that this is to live your life in a way that you understand who God is. God is holy. If you ever catch yourself saying you're a good person, I would fall on your knees and confess that to God because none of us are good people. If you're saying you're good, that means you're comparing yourselves to others. And it's easy to find other examples that you're better than, but the reality is our standard is God. And God's holiness is far beyond what we can even fathom. Like, we can't imagine it. Nor can we understand really how vile our sin is before God. And so this whole walking humbly with your God, I think that means live your life in a way where you don't lose sight of who God is, what he's done for you, and who you really are before him. And when you do that, it does make it a whole lot easier to love mercy, to be gracious to other people, um, to try to live your life with a sense of right and wrong because you're going to give an account for your life before this God who saved you. And so, Father, we do thank you for this story of um, this question about fasting isn't about fasting, it's about religion and the system of do's and don'ts and rules that we've we put in place. Often, I think, in innocent ways, in, in ways with good intentions to, to help guard ourselves from sinful tendencies or weaknesses in our life. But it's really easy for good things to turn into religious things, which turn into a, a false set of uh, do's and don'ts that we think make ourselves look better in your eyes. Father, I pray that you would help us, as Paul writes in Romans 5.1, to stand in grace, that we would understand that you love us because you love us, that Christ came and made the ultimate sacrifice for us so that we could have a relationship with you, not because of anything we had done or have done. He died for us while we were yet sinners. So, Father, we confess that we're so quick to judge others, to look down on others. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to keep our eyes on you and to recognize what you've done for us so that we would be a people that love justice, love mercy, and walk humbly before you all the days of our life. And we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.